Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear, page by page. This is page 580. I'm pretty sure he wants to fight, I said, trying to keep from laughing myself. Ah, Tempe said. Why does he not say? Why all of this? He flicked his fingers back and forth and gave me a quizzical look. Poncing around, I suggested. Tempe's confidence was having a relaxing effect on me, and I wasn't above getting a little dig of my own in. After seeing how easily the Adam had dealt with Dayton, I was looking forward to seeing him thump some of the arrogance out of this horse's ass. Tempe looked back toward the big man. If you wish to fight, now stop poncing around. The Adam made a broad gesture to the rest of the room. Go find others to fight with you. Bring enough women to feel safe. Good? My brief moment of relaxation evaporated as Tempe turned back to me, exasperation thick in his voice. You people are always talk. Tam stomped back to the table where his friends that sat throwing dice. All right, now, you heard him. The little grip shit says he's worth four of us, so let's show him the sort of damage four of us can do. Brendan, Ben, Jane, you in? A bald man and a tall woman came to their feet, smiling, but the third waved his hand dismissively. I'm too drunk to fight proper Tam, but that's not half as drunk as I'd need to be to go up against a bloodshirt. They're bastards in a fight. I seen it. I was no stranger to bar fights. You'd think they'd be rare in a place like the university, but liquor is the great leveler. After six or seven solid drinks, there is very little difference between a miller on the outs with his wife and a young alchemist who's done poorly on his exams. They're both equally eager to skin their knuckles on someone else's teeth. Even the Aeolian, genteel as it was, saw its share of scuffles. If you stayed late enough, you had a decent chance of seeing two of the embroidered nobility slapping away at each other. My point is, when you're a musician, you see a lot of fights. Some people go to the bars to drink. Some go to play dice. Some folk go looking for a fight, and others go hoping to watch a fight. Folks don't get hurt as much as you'd expect. Bruises and split lips are usually the worst of it. If you're unlucky, you might lose a tooth or break an arm, but there's a vast difference between a friendly bar fight and a back alley coshing. A bar fight has rules, and a host of unofficial judges standing around to enforce them. If things start to get vicious, spectators are quick to leap in and break things up, because that's what you'd want someone to do for you. There are exceptions, of course. Accidents happen, and I knew all too well from my time at the Medica how easy it was to sprain a wrist or dislocate a finger. Those might be minor injuries to a cattle drover or an innkeeper. But that's the end of the page. I'm Jeremy. I'm Jordana. I'm Nick. And I have a thing. The end of the page is the word innkeeper. Oh my god. I know the end of the page isn't on purpose, but I'm just saying. (laughs) In Nick's edition, it is. In my edition, it's butt. You're a butt. That's true. It's been said. This makes me think about a real-world phenomenon which is the culture of bar fights. It's my understanding that in some places in the world, like the UK, bar fights are a lot more common than they are here in Canada and in the United States. And it's because of what Quoth articulates here, that there are kind of unofficial rules. There's people standing around to make sure those rules get enforced. And if you do get in one, the stakes are relatively low. All you'll get is a couple bruises. Maybe you'll spend a night in the drunk tank but the consequences are fairly low. Here in Canada, and especially in the United States, you never know who's carrying a gun. So you don't really get in these casual fights because the stakes are liable to 
get really, really high really, really fast. Similarly, in the UK, if you get in a bar fight and the police come, they might whack you with a stick. They might throw you in the drunk tank for the night. But in some places in the United States and some places in Canada, if the police get involved in a violent altercation, there's a really good chance that they will kill you. They they will shoot first and ask questions later. Yeah, like, and, and I know that, you know, it's kind of hyperbolic to say it that way, but it's extremely true. Like, it's it's common knowledge in my circles that you don't get the police involved uh, because to involve the police in any situation is to immediately increase the chance of catastrophic violence. And I think that that's something that um, is kind of lost to a reader of this book, certainly in North America. Maybe this kind of more casual relationship to the the bar fight, almost like the ritualistic combat that Jeremy was talking about the other day, is maybe more common across the pond. But uh, certainly this, ad, like I've never even seen a bar fight Whereas I, I'm, you know, I've been led to understand that if you are out drinking in the UK or if you're out walking late at night, you'll probably like see a couple of guys scuffling at some point, or at least you're like in your if you're in a city. Um, but you know, obviously that's a, I, I don't know if that's true, but it's definitely like interesting to me to think of the cultural relationship to to fighting that uh, that we have. It's largely, I think, due to the so, some more complex systemic issues. I mean, it's also interesting to me that Quoth is so sanguine about it because I also think that the norm in this world is that most people are at the very least armed with a knife just for like day-to-day use. Uh, and as we will see later on in this scene, having a knife is an escalation of of the thing. I think another factor that we might want to think about uh, that contributes to the to Quoth's sort of sanguine cultural attitude to bar fights is like a thing that happens and people are going to get roughed up, but it's more than likely that no one's going to be seriously hurt most of the time. And I think that's because in a pre-modern society, most people are rural, populations are generally smaller. And so you tend to know the people at the bar that you're at more often than not, you know, not, they might not be your best friends or your neighbors, but they're like in your community, you uh, you know them or someone you know knows them. And so you don't necessarily want to go like shanking a guy because he might be your cousin's wife's sister's best friend's former roommate or something. Like there's, there's the sense of community that I think is lost when one is more alienated uh, from one's community and from one's, one's uh, the place where one lives. Yeah, that's an interesting observation because if I think about like, I I was like, have I seen any fights? And I have, but only among people who know one another in a group of other people who know those people, like fights at like at a party in college, like that, because you're around a bunch of people and you all know each other and a fight breaks out, but it like, it still feels safer because you know all those people and like you're- Right, someone's going to stop their friend before they go too far. Yeah. Like, like only so many people around are going to let that fight take any serious turn. And like pretty much like bloody noses were had, but like nothing got broken. <laughs> exactly. And I think that you touched on something, Jeremy, that is relevant in this chapter where that social contract is kind of understood by every participant here. I don't even think that Tam would pull a knife. I think that 
everyone involved in this kind of understands that even though they're looking pretty serious about it and he threatened to knock Quoth's teeth out, I think they all kind of understand that this is still like a bar fight. Like this is still a dick swinging competition because they want to see if they can take an atom in a fight. But there are rules. There are exactly there are still rules you don't do. And spoilers for the next uh, couple pages from now, it's Quoth who pulls a knife and Tempe is very disappointed with him. And so I think that it's Quoth who's sort of broken the social contract here. I think that even Tam and his cronies wouldn't have pulled a knife on in this situation. I mean, I don't know whether that's true or not, because frankly, Tempe doesn't give them the opportunity because he handles them so thoroughly and so quickly. But I I do think that you're absolutely right that like Quoth, you know, getting ready to come to Tempe's defense with a knife would be a huge escalation of a tense situation that doesn't necessarily need to go that far, right? Tempe ends the fight and that is the end of it. It doesn't get any farther than that. But I also think that that's reflective of the fact that Quoth's mood in this scene oscillates wildly between confidence and almost eagerness to see Tempe, you know, do his stuff and a real terror that this is going to go badly and get them both maimed or killed. And he, you can see him in the, like the past couple of pages, like he kind of relaxes because Tempe's confident. And then Tempe, because again, Tempe's not completely, you know, aware of what cultural context he's in, you know, says something really provoking to the guys that like, go find others to fight with you, bring enough women to feel safe. Uh, and that, of course, like Tam's like, all right, I'm going to get my friends. We're all going to kick your ass. Right. And that quote, you could practically see quote, like putting his face in his hands going, oh, no, because uh, he's really afraid that Tempe's going to get hurt and that he might get hurt, too. So we know because we know about more about the Adem that like the the women of the Adem are stronger fighters than the men. Well, and they're also seen as like in some sense, like more civilized. Yeah, but we don't know that yet, theoretically. If we were, like, reading this for the first yeah. time, we wouldn't know that yet. Um, and so, given, like, the way that the culture we currently live in has progressed, that theoretically might sound like an insult to say, like, bring as many women, rather yeah. than bring as many men. Um, but, I mean, the guy does bring a woman. He right, but Jane. she also takes it as an insult when Tempe says on the next page, there's only one woman, don't you want more? And she's like, yeah, I'll, I'll show you what a woman could do, you arrogant shit. Because they don't, like, Tempe's understanding of what it means to bring a woman to a fight is completely different than what everybody else in the Commonwealth would other would understand that to mean. Yeah. So that is like, that's another like clue for the first time reader of like, what is Adem culture all about? What are the big cultural differences, the gaps between, between Tempe and everybody else? And obviously the status and role of women in society is a huge one. Yes. Stefan thinks. Mm-hmm. I also, it's also very funny and very uh, good foreshadowing that of the four people, Tam, uh, of the three people Tam get, tries to get to help him, the one guy is like, no, I've seen an Adem before. I'm not getting involved. Like, you're on your own, buddy. 
Yeah, I, I appreciate that that sensibility has been shared. And like, it also tells us a little something in that like, ADEM mercenaries are common enough that even these kind of level one thugs have, you know, at least one of them has seen one before and knows better. Whereas everybody else kind of has heard about them, but hasn't ever like encountered one themselves. Or if they have, they're not saying anything. <laughs> yeah. Or they like haven't fought with one before, right? Like if Tam had ever fought on Adam before, you know better than to do what he's about to do. I mean, theoretically, there could be other people in the bar who have encountered, fought, or or fought with Adem. They might just be quiet people who are like, I'm just going to watch this happen. Yeah, or they're not Tam's friends and they're looking forward to him getting the, the butt, stuffing whopped out of yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's proceed to watching Tam get the stuffing beat out of him. Unless, um, unless have you have letter. something else. We have a letter. We have an awful lot of long letters in the mailbag here, and we've had an awful lot of long episodes this week. So I'm going to read the one short letter here and implore our listeners to, uh, if you have a thought, jot it down and send it to us. You don't need to always write us novels, although we're, we love your novels. Uh, I tend to read the novels in the shorter episodes, and when we have a longer episodes, I try to read the shorter letters, but it doesn't always shake out that way. This is from Patrick Not Rothfuss, who writes on page five... 69 jack's story hi pagers i have a couple of notes about the jack's story the first is minor you said Felurian refers to him as eax but she actually refuses to use his name she says i will not speak of that one though he is shut behind the doors of stone it is actually bast who uses the name eax after quoth tells about the kithay yak spoke to the kithay before he stole the moon this brings me to my second point the story mentions that jack's has a shadow about him Bast also says the Cathay is never explicitly mentioned in stories because it is more than rude. It's like spitting poison in someone's ear. The shadow about Jax could be a way of referencing the Cathay without speaking its name. That's all I have for now. Thanks as always. Signed, Patrick, not Rothfuss. Very interesting. I do love uh, a little allegory, and it's been said that the Cathay is involved in the Jax story. So that could certainly be the way, like sort of the, the cultural coding that a fey person listening to this story might understand that uh, to say that there's a shadow means that there's, that the Cathay is involved just sort of like in a movie. Uh, if a woman puts her hand on her belly, we know that it means she's pregnant, even if they don't mm-hmm. say it. Or if, you know, I mean, a she cop could just have gas. No, it's true. <laughs> but it's rarely a plot point in a movie that a woman has gas. Indeed. Or, or if someone coughs like, a little bit of blood into a handkerchief. Yeah, we know, know they're going to die. Yeah. Or if or if like in a war movie if a guy is showing off a picture of like his girlfriend or his like his new baby, like that guy is not living to the end of the movie. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> That's um, not exactly the same thing, but you know what? I think we all know what what what, what do we mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um but it, like in terms of like using a euphemism to stand in for something else, I think an example that maybe a lot of our listeners might be familiar with is uh the English word for uh, for bear comes from the old English word for brown because, uh, you know, a thousand years ago or more, the bear was such a scary thing that you didn't want to say the name out loud in case it appeared. So you referred to it euphemistically as the brown one or the brown thing. And over time, we lost what the actual word for bear was. Oh, how interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why uh, the French word uh, brun 
right? It means brown, but it mean we in English it also means bear, a Bruin. Um, but another, I wanted to put forward a crackpot theory spinning forward out of this letter. So if uh, saying that Yaks had a shadow about him is a way of saying that he is somehow enthralled to or connected to the Cathaya, well then, if what if Haliax bearing the shadow's hame is not just that he like, you know, is enveloped in living shadow, but what if that tells should be telling us that Haliax is wearing the mantle of the Cathaya or is somehow enthralled to, in service to, bound by, connected to the Cathaya. Mm, I like it. I like it. Listeners, you'll like all of our crackpot theories on tomorrow's page. Of the Wait. Wait. Wait.